right, well, if you have your copies of God's Word, please turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27. In, in two weeks, uh, we're going to pick up our studies in Isaiah, picking up in chapter 28, where we'll do a special sermon next week with the baptism, but in two weeks, we'll pick up again in chapter 28. But I thought it would be good for us to remember where we left off in chapter 27 and spend some time thinking about all that we have learned uh, in the book of Isaiah thus far. So Isaiah chapter 27, beginning at verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And that day a pleasant vineyard sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up altogether. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken, like the wilderness where the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who informed them will show them no favor. And that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray now for the help of your Holy Spirit as we come back into the book of Isaiah, seeking to, to glean the riches that are found in this book that has been called the fifth gospel. We pray that your Spirit would open it to us and apply it to our hearts, that we would be well prepared to start our studies again in a couple of weeks. Lead us now, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, well, we have been uh, taking breaks as we've been going through uh, our studies in the book of Isaiah. We started this, um, I, think, uh, I think, at the beginning of 2020. I didn't check uh, before I came up here, probably should have, but uh, we've been doing it for a year and a half approximately now, but of course not consecutively. We've been taking breaks as we've gone through it, and we've done that for uh, two reasons, essentially. One, 
This is a long book. The book of Isaiah is 66 chapters long, and these are long chapters, so a continuous study of this book would take a long time. But the second reason, really the primary reason why we're taking breaks as we go through the book of Isaiah is because this is a heavy book. It is a book that dwells on and returns to the same heavy themes of God's judgment against sin. Now, we've seen that in the passage we've just read, but if you cast your minds back through the 27 chapters that we've studied, we've seen these themes come up again and again. These are chapters that are heavy with solemn declarations of God's judgment upon the pagan nations that have tempted Judah to forsake their loyalty to God, and they're heavy with the declarations of God's judgment upon Judah as they have forsaken the Lord and gone after those idols and false promises that have come from the pagan nations. And we've seen how Isaiah, or uh, better, God through Isaiah, has approached this theme of coming judgment from a variety of angles, all of them illustrating this central theme and driving it into the hearts and the minds of the readers, that God will not be mocked, and He will take vengeance upon those who do not honor Him as God. So, in the material that we've already covered, we've seen in the first five chapters a quick introduction to the scene that in broad brushstrokes brought us into a quick familiarity with the dire spiritual situation in Judah and Jerusalem by the time of Isaiah's ministry amongst them. And in particular, you remember those first five chapters focused on the religious games that the Judeans were playing, going through all the motions of worship, appearing to be outwardly pious and religious and worshipful, going up to the temple but all the while devoting themselves to idols, devoting themselves to the things of the nations, devoting themselves to their own lusts and passions, and ignoring the Word of God. But then you remember in chapters 6 through 12, the focus turned to the spiritual rot in Judah specifically, and specifically how that rot has come down from the top. Remember in, in chapter 6 through 12, we saw how the kings of Judah, and particularly King Ahaz, have abdicated their responsibility in Judah, right? The idea was that the king in Judah, and even the king in Israel, would be, in a sense, the model Israelite, that the king would be stand as the chief worshiper within the the land, that he would stand as the chief servant of God in the land, demonstrating to his people what humble submission to God and joyful dependence upon God looked like. That was essentially the role that God had given to them, that they were to be men of earthly power who gladly gave up that power in order to honor God with all that they said and did. 
But as chapter 6 through 12 came and pointedly condemned, instead of devoting themselves to joyful obedience to God, the kings of Judah, and specifically Ahaz, had set themselves up just like the kings of the other nations. And so they had garnered power to themselves, and they had consolidated their wealth and their positions. And instead of looking to the Lord to protect them, they were involved in these international treaties, trying to form these defensive alliances in order to protect and even enlarge their own kingdoms. In chapters 13 through 27, which we looked at last, at the beginning of this year, we saw then how the focus changed again, now coming outside of Judah and essentially focusing on the pagan nations that surrounded Judah. Remember those chapters 13 through 27 made up of a cycle of oracles against the nations, and every oracle coming against those pagan nations and specifically condemning them for the particular ways in which they have resisted the rule and reign of Israel's God, and how they had tempted Judah to a self-centered, self-reliant idolatry. It all culminated, of course, in chapter 24, and the oracle of chapter 24 that is solemnly entitled simply, The Oracle Against the Whole Earth. It was that great declaration that in, in the face of all the sin and rebellion that was rife on the face of the earth, God takes a stand and He declares to all the earth that He will not be mocked and that a day is coming when He will be given His due place, and He will be glorified on every square inch of all of creation. These are significant passages. In many ways, they're, they're glorious passages, but they are heavy passages. And if we're honest, as we read through Isaiah as we've gone through them in our sermons, but also as you read through them in your devotions, if we're honest, these are chapters that can weigh us down. Right? When we began our series last time, picking up in uh, chapter 13, I said that I noted that, that Leviticus carries the crown as the proverbial devotional killer that everybody starts out so earnestly January 1, and they do well through Genesis and even through Exodus, and then they hit Leviticus, and suddenly devotions get a lot more difficult in the morning. Well, Isaiah functions in a similar way for many of us, doesn't it? We get to Isaiah, and maybe we get through the first five chapters, and then Isaiah 6, and that glorious scene of Isaiah standing in the presence of God, and then we get into these grinding oracles, condemnation after condemnation, judgment after judgment coming down on the people of God and on the nations, and it can seem like such a slog to get through. Or maybe we read through this, and it all just strikes us as so medieval and barbaric. 
so far removed from the world that we sophisticated 21st century Westerners live in. And of course, none of this is that far removed from the world that we live in. It's only far removed from the world that we like to think that we live in. Or better, more accurately, none of this is that far removed from the church that we live in. But remember, and this is an important thing to keep in mind when you are interpreting the Old Testament, the equivalent of Israel, or Israel and Judah, as it is here now after the division of the kingdom following Solomon's death, the equivalent is not the United States of America. The equivalent is not any geopolitical body that we might think of. The equivalent of Israel, the equivalent of Judah, is the church. But Israel, Judah, they don't stand here primarily as geopolitical entities. They are that at this point, but they stand here primarily as the covenanted people of God as the heirs of the promise that God gave to Abraham and then reiterated to Moses, the promise that God gave to David. And it's one of the reasons why what we read here of their sin is so heinous and awful. Right? We can understand pagans being pagans. Right? Sinners gonna sin. But here, when we read of Judah, we are reading of the covenanted people of God. Right? These are the circumcised. These are those who bear in their body the mark of God's covenant with Abraham. These are the people of the promise. And so, as you make an application, as you read through this, and as you interpret the Old Testament in Isaiah, the, the application is not first and foremost to the nation in which we live or to any society that might surround us, it is to the church that we are a part of, as baptized members of the covenant community. And when we think about it like that, I think this makes this all the more weighty and sobering. But it also, at least I hope, startles us into seeing just how terrible it is when Christians, when the church, grow comfortable with sin and grow content with following the trajectory of the culture that surrounds the church. And it is, it is very easy for us to grow comfortable with our sin. It's, it's reflected in the words that we use to describe our sin, isn't it? When we talk about our sin, we, we use words that that take the heat out of them. We say we messed up. Uh, we say we made a mistake. Right? Or, or when we think about our continuing propensity to sin, we will say, well, I'm just a work in progress. Or there's that recent fad, of course, to describe our sinfulness as, as brokenness, as if we need a therapist more than a savior. And it's easy for us to go comfortable with, the, with worldliness in the church and in believers. We, we, we want to say to those who, 
who urge us to an earnest pursuit of holiness, well, don't be so extreme. Don't be such a, a killjoy. It's, it's not that big of a deal, we might say. We're always tempted to have a foot in both camps, in the church and in the, in the world. But these chapters, you understand, they are heavy. These are weighty chapters, not because Isaiah was a poor writer, but because they are designed to draw our attention to just how awful our sin and worldliness is. Or maybe better, these chapters, they are weighty and heavy because they are designed to make us feel how awful our sin and worldliness is. And so as we go through the book of Isaiah, and it seems like a bit of a slog, and the images that he employs seem dramatic and maybe overblown, you understand what you are experiencing is not a disconnect from your world and Isaiah's world. You are feeling the very same things that Isaiah's original audience were meant to feel as they heard Isaiah preaching and as they read what he wrote. This is meant to be a difficult book because this is a sobering confrontation, confronting us with the with the sobering reality that God takes sin seriously, and He will by no means clear the guilty. But what we might miss, and I hope we don't, is we feel these chapters pressing down on us as we read. What we might miss, but what is so essential to see, is that this is not a hopeless book that is concerned only with the warning of judgment. Now, in a sense, that would be enough, wouldn't it? You've, you've heard me say many times as we've gone through Isaiah and in, and in other places that the warning of God's judgment in Scripture always carries with it the implicit invitation to repentance and faith. Right? It's what we see with Rahab. How is Rahab converted? Only because she knows of the awful terror of Israel's God in the plagues manifested in Egypt. But Rahab, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is driven then by that word of judgment to cast herself upon the mercy of Israel's God. What is it that Jonah preaches to Nineveh? He doesn't preach to them the gospel. He is no Billy Graham coming to Nineveh. As far as Scripture tells us, the only thing that Jonah tells them is that God is going to destroy them because of their sin. But it is enough for them, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to be driven to cast themselves upon the mercy of Israel's God. In a sense, the reason why God forewarns anybody of judgment. He's not gloating. He's warning that they might come to Him in faith and repentance. And so, if this book was only ever that, if all that we found in Isaiah was oracle after oracle, judgment after judgment, coming, condemning Israel's sin and condemning our sin as we look into the mirror of this book, it would be enough, wouldn't it? 
But what I want us to see, what I really hope we don't miss, is that throughout this book, there runs a rich golden seam that explicitly tells us of God's grace for repentant sinners. Throughout the tapestry of Isaiah, there is woven this golden thread this promise of forgiveness that is held out to any and to all who would repent of their sins and cast themselves upon the Lord and submit to Him in joyful obedience. Weaving its way through all of these chapters has been this great running promise that while the Lord will not take sin lightly, and while the Lord will certainly avenge Himself and His crown rights against all those who would turn away from Him to find salvation in someone or something other than Him, running through it all is this promise that He will, to use the words of Habakkuk 3.2, He will in His wrath remember mercy. There is a running invitation, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit, for us to turn away from the foolish things that seem so glittering, that seem so alluring, that seem so persuasive and sophisticated, that look like they will be the places where we will find joy and satisfaction and security, but in the end deliver nothing. The invitation is to turn from them and to come back to the Lord wholeheartedly in faithful obedience, trusting Him to provide for us that deep-seated satisfaction that our souls crave. It's been there right from the very beginning of this book. Chapter 21, verse 27, while rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Yet, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. Or chapter 1, even earlier, verse 18, Come now, the Lord says, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In chapter 3, in the midst of the prophecy of the devastation of Jerusalem, what we read in verse 11, Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Yet verse 10, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Or chapter 12, verse 1, You will say in that day, I have given thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Woven into those 
strong warnings of God's judgment against sin, against those who would stand over and against Him, against those who would be the masters of their own fates and the captains of their own souls, against those who cast about looking for a better offer from the gods of the nations that surrounded Israel in the midst of it all, has run this promise of mercy that those who turn from their sin, those who cast themselves upon the Lord in faith, it is not that they might find forgiveness. It is that they will find forgiveness. It is not that God might be their Savior. It is that God will be their Savior. It is the promise that if they heed these warnings and humble themselves before God, then they will be saved from God, by God, reunited to live with God and enjoy the pleasures of union and communion with Him now and forevermore. What is perhaps more extraordinary than we might be tempted to believe is that this promise it runs there for the faithless, covenanted people of God. It comes there as the promise for Judah. It comes for the faithless amongst the church. But it also comes to the nations. In those chapters we've just looked at, 13 through 27, there is this relentless litany of judgment, this almost hammer pounding blows that come as God brings the nations before Him and sentences them for their sin. But even there, we find beautiful promises of God's grace for the repentant. But if we think of these chapters, if we mix our metaphors here, in one sense these oracles are like hammer blows striking against the nations. But in another sense, there is a we read through them, and they're like these raging rapids that we find ourselves rushing down, the noise of God's judgment deafening our ears, buffeted here and there as God brings His judgments against these various nations. But as we run through these chapters, we come out into these occasional deep and still pools that give us relief pools of God's mercy that invite everyone to come in and swim in His grace, these sweet promises that punctuate these oracles that said to the nations that there is a Savior for them if only they put their faith in Israel's God. And specifically, as Isaiah has focused so intently throughout this book on the future destruction of kingdoms, whether it be the destruction of Israel and Judah in the coming exiles that have been alluded to, or whether it's the coming destruction of the pagan nations that have been manifested in the oracles, as Isaiah has focused so much on the coming destruction of earthly kingdoms, we have increasingly seen that all of this great redemptive hope is fixed on the establishment of a new and greater heavenly kingdom. And even more specifically, this great redemptive hope has been fixed on the establishment of that kingdom by the great Redeemer King, 
Jesus. And so in chapter 14, verse 1, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will establish themselves to the house of Jacob. You hear the covenant with Abraham just pulsing out of that verse that here God will establish this people for himself and the sojourners, the nations will come and be blessed in this new kingdom. But then chapter 16, from the end of verse 4, when the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, when the day of destruction and judgment is done, God is saying, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. In the place of Ahaz, in the place of all the faithless kings, God is saying he will establish this kingdom that he had promised to Abraham, and he will set over it the king that he promised to David. And in that man, the security and the prosperity and the longevity of this kingdom will be found. It's the great theme that we saw come out so vividly in our last study in chapters 24 through 27 as Isaiah described the fates of those two cities. Did you remember that? The tale of two cities, not written first by Augustine, but by Isaiah. That city of man destined to crumble before the righteousness of God despite all of its beautiful walls and its strong gates and its many houses and the singing in the city, despite all of the marks of its prosperity, that city of man that would be left an absolute wasteland, right? Do you remember chapter 24? Isaiah sees it with its walls broken down, its gates battered into ruins, the singing silenced. He even says that, that he, could, he could hear the wine mourning. And it's this picture of, of this, this wine that had been the source of this self-satisfied, drunken merriment. Now nobody was there to be merry anymore, and so the, the wine sits mourning, as it were, in the bottles. The city of man put away, but the city of God established. The city of God, it seemed so small and weak and insignificant. The, the church, right, that, that seems now so small and weak and insignificant, even just a, a remnant of the faithful in Isaiah's day and maybe even in ours too, but on that last day, that, that city of God, that kingdom of the faithful, the church expanded to become this worldwide revelation 21-22 city filled with a people who are now just captivated by their Redeemer. That city of God, chapter 16, that is centered on the throne of the descendant of David, the throne of this righteous Redeemer King, this righteous divine Redeemer King who has banished the oppressors, who has stopped the sinful destruction, who has brought peace, shalom, wholeness, now to bear once more on 
the world, in the face of the confusion of sin, in the face of the destruction of sin, the hope now presented that a day will come when a Redeemer will arrive to make all things new, to make all things whole again. It is a word of tremendous grace to his stubbornly sinful people. And that's what I want us to keep at the fore of our minds as we go back into Isaiah in a couple of weeks as we pick up at chapter 28. It's my hope that over these next two weeks you'll, you'll prepare for those studies, that you'll come back and you'll read through the previous 27 chapters again, that you'll maybe even read on into the next few chapters, getting your mind, your heart ready for what we will encounter. And as you do so, keep this in mind for all of the weightiness and the heaviness of this book, for all of the seriousness and the solemnity of the warning of God's judgment against sin. Keep in your mind that the whole purpose of this book is to highlight the grace of God towards wholly undeserving sinners and to show us that that grace is found in one man, Jesus Christ. We are about to go back into a world of lament. The next few chapters will be a series of six laments, not all that different from the pounding oracles to the nations that we have just seen. We're about to go back into a world of, in which the darkness of sin will loom large. But, but let us go back into these chapters expectant expectant to see how these chapters will show us more of the grace and mercy of God, expectant to see how these chapters will show us more of the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ, expectant to see how God will reveal to us the depths of our own sin, but not so as to grind us down, but rather so that we might then be compelled to run from our sin compelled to once again run to Jesus, compelled to look to Him not just for the forgiveness of our sins, but to look to Him wholly as the one in whom our whole life and hope is wrapped up in. Ray Ortland, in his commentary on this, says in chapters 28 through 35, which is the next chunk that we'll look at, God affirms that He has the power to fulfill all the saving purposes He has declared in chapters 1 through 27. Let me read that again. In these chapters, God affirms that He has the power to fulfill all the saving purposes that He has declared in chapters 1 through 27. God looks us right in the eye and claims that He can and will deliver on every single promise in the gospel. Do you believe him? Do you prepare for the next, uh, to come back to Isaiah in the next two weeks? I want us to have that question in our minds. Do you believe God's promises? Do you believe that God has the power to fulfill all of his promises? 
promises. As we read these solemn statements, these solemn confrontations about just how deep and dark our sin is, as we read these promises of salvation in Jesus Christ, do you believe Him? And some of you need to ask yourself if you have ever believed Him. And some of you have not yet professed faith in Christ, especially now the younger members of our church. Think about this as we go through these chapters. Do you believe that the warning of God, that your sin is as truly bad as God says it is, do you believe Him? Do you believe the warning of God about how bad your sin is? Do you believe the promises of God that there is salvation for you, covenant child, in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in Him? Some of you have professed faith in Christ, but it is a faith without substance. I don't know who you are, but the Bible tells me that there are those within the church who are self-deceived, the tares that are in with the, the wheat those who put on a Christian facade but have never truly cast themselves upon Christ in faith. I wonder this morning if that is you. And so now is the time to ask yourself, do you actually believe God? Do you believe the Bible's condemnation of your sin? Do you believe the Bible's promises of perfect, whole salvation in Jesus Christ? Even for those of us who truly know Jesus, who truly do have faith in Him, this is an important question for us to return to time and again. Are we being lured away by the promises of false gospels? Are we growing weary in our discipleship? Are we compromising here and there to make our lives just a little bit easier? But Isaiah comes to you and he wants to shake you awake to show you the importance of a constant active repentance and a constant active faith in Christ. This book is so rich and full. It is a book that comes to afflict the comfortable, but also to comfort the afflicted. So as we come back into it, wrestle with it. Reckon with these chapters and see the glories of God and the wonders of Christ as they are revealed here. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, there are portions of your word that are light and easy and joyful, but there are portions of your word that are solemn and serious and heavy. All of them given by God through the Spirit as he inspired these holy men of old as they wrote that the church might be edified, equipped, trained in righteousness for every good work. And so as we come now to Isaiah again, a portion of your word very different from 2 Timothy, but every bit as important, we pray that your spirit would apply it to our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for having light views of our sin. Forgive us, Lord, for believing the lies of this culture that tells us that we're not really that bad. Oh, Lord, as we go through Isaiah, help us to see just how ugly and deep our depravity runs. But help us then to see all the more gloriously and expansively the riches of the redemption that is in Jesus. 
Oh Lord, as we want to reckon with this text, Lord, more than that, we pray that your Spirit would reckon with us. We pray that he would do a good work in us, deepening our faith and driving us on for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.